Hi, Claire. Hello. How you doing? So thank you for 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 coming out tonight to uh, uh, speak with us. Fortunately, I didn't have far to go. You know, from my sofa to here, it's about ten foot. So that that's an easy <laughs> to come and come and speak to you. <laughs> so 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 it's been about one year now that we've been uh, stuck at home. I guess. Any thoughts on on being stuck at home for a whole year? Well, to be honest, because I was doing my PhD mostly working from home before that, it's 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 been way longer than a year. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this has been about the last five years, really. Although probably everyone feels like it's been the last five years. So, yeah. What have you been working on in your, in your PhD? On my PhD, uh, I'm looking at weather forecasts, doing a little bit of post-processing work and some uncertainty quantification. So we've got a, a Bayesian framework that kind of models the different elements that go into your forecasts that your uh, your operational centres produce. And we're looking at how we can use that to try and post-process them, which basically just means correcting the biases and, and trying to get a decent assessment of the uncertainty that is in your forecast, getting them well calibrated. So what does this do? Does this tell me what the weather is going to be tomorrow? Well, you already have a guess of what the weather's going to be tomorrow. What we need to do is correct that guess, basically. So all of the models have some biases in them. And all of these different operational forecasting centres, like the Met Office and Metier France, and every country has its own weather forecasting centre, and they all have their own models, and they all say their model is right. And all of the models disagree. <laughs> so what you can do is you can combine the models into a multi-model ensemble and see if you get a better forecast. But actually, because of the way the models are constructed, so they have kind of shared code and they have the same sort of assumptions about how the atmosphere works. So they all have kind of the same bias generally or the same kind of errors in there. Just adding more ensembles, you're not getting closer to the truth. You're getting closer to what all the ensembles are modeling. And then what you actually want to do is get to over here so you need some sort of post-processing correction on all of your ensembles to try and get closer to, the, to what you're actually trying to forecast. So do these models do better than like, you know, I don't know if I'm a farmer in the 1855 or something like that, I look at this thing called the Albnomac or something like this, right? And it says like March 23rd, it rained. So <laughs> Mostly you know, it rains. last year it rained, this year, maybe it's all the same time, it'll rain again, right? You know, that, I don't know, I don't know what they used to do in the past. I guess it does better than this, right? I really hope it does better than that. I mean, you'd, you'd have to show me the book. We'd have to do some proper, you know, statistical analysis, some sort of rigorous investigation. <laughs> but I, my hunch would be, yes, we would do better than that. So what yeah. is it? Is it based on, like, it's pretty based on up-to-date information, right? Because if I go to my cell phone and it says it's going to rain, sometimes it just changes. Maybe the, it knows some cloud moved or something. <laughs> yeah, precipitation is hard to forecast. That's the tricky one. So I'm mostly looking at uh, temperatures because they're nice and smoothly varying and they're sort of a bit Gaussian, whereas precipitation, you've got this kind of weird mixture of does it rain, does it not rain? And then when it does rain, what, what does that look like? Like what's the distribution of the rain amount? It's really hard to model when you try, start trying to get into rainfall modeling. It's um, very complicated. So yeah, mostly I'm looking at um, just temperature forecast post-processing at the moment. To, to ask your actual question, <laughs> which I didn't do. Yeah, so... All of the models, they get updated based on the latest information, but missing information can make a really big difference. So they're probably the app on your phone is updating current forecast as quickly as it can. But if they run a simulation and it outputs every hour, then you might get an update on that hour that changes something quite big. So I was talking to some meteorologists in Switzerland and there was a case a few years ago where there was a massive flash flood in one of the big valleys in Switzerland. You know, people drowned. And it wasn't, I think it was on Christmas day, actually. Um, and, you know, houses were damaged and it was it was a massive event and there was no warning whatsoever. 
and it cause, was because this one radio sonde, which is like a balloon with measuring equipment on essentially, they hadn't got the data back from that in time to include it in that simulation, forecast simulation. And when they went back and ran it with that radio sonde in there, there was this huge storm was, was clearly there and it was clearly forecast. So if they'd had that one piece of information that came in like an hour too late, they could have warned everyone. So it really can be that kind of sensitive to the data that you have available and in the really short term. And the really, and, but, but the temperature isn't like this though. Temperature lesser. I mean, if it rains, it's going to change the temperature, but generally temperature doesn't change by a huge amount unless you've got a big weather system coming in. And normally you can see those fairly well in advance. Because most, well, especially at this time of year, more so in winter, but kind of at this time of year, a lot of it, a lot of our weather is dominated by kind of frontal, big synoptic, you know, when you watch the weather and they have these big kind of isobars swirling across the whole country, that kind of dominates our weather. So were you always interested, in, this is what brought you to UCL, the weather or? No, <laughs> I, I didn't want to do weather, I wanted to do climate. So oh, the, that, Those aren't the same thing. <laughs> They're not the same thing. No, weather is is like what's actually happening day to day and climate is the kind of longer term average oh, behavior yeah. of the weather. So if you kind of average the last 10 years of weather, that's your climate. What's happening tomorrow is the weather. Yeah, so no, I, I came to UCL because I'd read a paper of Richard's that I kind of said, oh, this looks really interesting. And it's, it's the same framework, but about climate. He kind of proposed it eight years ago, I think. And I saw this paper and said, oh, this looks really interesting. Um, you could do sequential forecasting. You could do this, this, this. Uh, would you be interested in supervising a PhD? And he wrote back to me and said, eh, someone's just done a PhD on that, but you could see if it works for weather. <laughs> was, was kind of ultimately how that kind of came out. Um, yeah. So that's what I ended up doing. But now I'm doing a postdoc that is looking at climate. So I'm kind of back where I originally intended to go. I see, I see, I see. So when you read this paper, were you, uh, what were you doing when you were your master's student or were you work, working in industry? What were you doing when you read that? Um, I was, what was I doing at that point? I think I was between things. So I did a master, I, I was working and I decided I needed to retrain because I didn't have any qualifications that let me do the stuff I wanted to do, which is basically playing with numbers. So I went and did an open university degree because my original, my original degree is English literature. <laughs> Oh, really? Obviously, obviously. That's not great for employability when it turns out that your brain is very much a, an analytical numbers brain. Uh, so, yeah, I went and did an open university maths and stats degree, quit my job and went and did a master's at Warwick. And I wasn't really thinking of doing a PhD until I did my master's project and really enjoyed it. But by that time, it was June and it was kind of too late to apply for that tranche of studies. So I had a year of not quite dead time. Um, but I, at the time, I thought I had a year of kind of just waiting until I could start a PhD. So I was ju just doing kind of temporary jobs. And I actually did a, I always refer to it as my pre-doc up at work. I was working there for kind of six, because it was, it was replacing a postdoc that had got another job, but it was only for the last six months of the project. Um, and that was looking at x-ray imaging. <laughs> so that was what I was doing. Oh, x-ray imaging. Ah, I see. Looking at the development of defects in x-ray detectors. It's really cool. So what 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 uh, so what that but that wasn't your master project though. What was what was your master project? My master's project was uh, statistics in Anglo-Saxon archaeology. I like that it kind of tied back to to my uh, English degree because I did lots of Old English Anglo-Saxon archaeology in that. I was kind of a medieval and previous specialist. Is that how you chose that topic? Is be, be, because you had the experience? Oh, I'm not sure experience is the right word, but it it certainly appealed because it it kind of it had a nice sort of 
symmetry to it, I guess. Um, and also when I spoke to the supervisor, it just sounded like a really interesting project because I, I quite like applying statistics in areas that aren't necessarily well trodden, if that makes sense. Uh -huh. Like there, there are always lots of projects in like financial statistics and medical statistics, but <laughs> it feels like everyone's doing that. And this was just, just this little weird kind of niche thing of looking at whether there was any evidence in these Anglo-Saxon sites that, that there was sort of a greater plan than someone just rocking up on a hillside and going, I'm going to build my house here because it's a nice view. And then someone else rocking up and going, I'm going to build my house there because that's a nice view and it's far enough away from you. So it was looking at the angles between walls to see if you could kind of identify evidence of common planning between different structures. So it was kind of cool. I got to do lots of stuff with directional statistics and lots of image processing because all of this stuff came from, uh, all of the data that I had came from scans of maps from archaeology books. Oh, and speaking of archaeology books, this is this is my favourite thing. This has my master's work in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm in the appendix. That's, That's awesome. I know. See, when I, the reason I didn't, or part of the reason I did an English degree was because growing up, I always wanted to be a writer and I'm like, ah, I'm in a book. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Not quite how I planned, but you know, it worked. So I guess if the houses were all random angles, then there'd be no planning. But if they're all sort of pointing... <laughs> Yeah, if there's evidence that they were all kind of aligned, then then that suggests a greater plan. Because this is all from looking at evidence from uh, the period that's often been known as the Dark Ages, when there was kind of this assumption that we were all just kind of heathen barbarians yomping around the fields because the Romans weren't there telling us what to do. We didn't really know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> um, but actually, there's, there's a team at Oxford who wrote that book who believe there's evidence of kind of more structured planning going on. I'm not going to try and remember which areas of the UK they were looking at specifically but they had a couple of sites and they wanted to look at some evidence of that so my supervisor had looked at um, they were also looking at whether there was evidence of a common unit of measurement being used which is oh. called a perch uh -huh. so you know where all the buildings to within a certain distance because all of this information comes from post holes which is so you basically got kind of holes where fence posts were stuck in the ground or yes, yes. <laughs> and they can move over time so you can't it's not super precise oh. and there might be some slippage and it's really interesting it's really interesting and it, it kind of appealed because I can remember doing an archaeology module when I did my English degree and you people would make statements like oh yes most of the graves are aligned in a north-south direction and I remember at the time going I mean most of them how, how aligned? How north-south? Like, what does that mean? And I think there's, there's a lot of stuff you could do with statistics to, okay, is that actually true? I don't know. It, it might not be, I guess, right? It might not be, right? This is... It's just someone eyeballing it and going, oh, I think they're probably all in a straight line. Are they? I don't know. But there are things that you could do to check. But just... It's probably, mean, yeah, it's probably something Herodotus told us and then we just believe <laughs> it, right? So it sounds like, you know, statistics and, and science have a lot more to offer archaeology than just like carbon dating or something like this. I don't know. I, if that... I think so. But then I am someone that I like my evidence to be backed up by proper evidence rather than by someone going, I think this is the case and everyone going, oh, okay. I'm not sure carbon dating even applies actually to, to something oh, like this. <laughs> uh, not, not with looking at the direction of maybe because you need to date your structures. So you can only see if you've got common planning between structures from the same time. Uh -huh. So carbon dating, you would need to date artifacts that are found in the same area to establish, well, not establish the date. That's, that's largely speculating. I'm not an archaeologist. There's probably archaeologists. If an archaeologist ever saw this, would just be going, no, what are you talking about, woman? So uh, I should step back from pronouncing on that one. <laughs>
Well, they're not, they're probably not going to watch this, so you're, you're probably safe, right? I'm kind of assuming so, but I just don't want there to be one furious archaeologist going, you've misrepresented us. So who was your who was your advisor at, at war? Uh, it was a guy called Wilfred Kendall, who comes from a, a noble line of statisticians. He's not Kendall of Kendall's Tau. <laughs> There's a lot of Kendalls about. Oh, that's not, a different Kendall? A, that's a different Kendall. Um David Kendall, who I think set up one of the statistics labs at Cambridge or the statistics lab at Cambridge. I'm not sure of the name of it. And he actually did a lot of the work on on this common unit of measurement. I think that set, set up the method that was used oh. to establish whether there was a common unit of measurement and also looked at evidence for ley lines, which I love. What are so ley lines? Geometry of ley lines. Ley lines are mythical lines of power that supposedly uh like sacred sites are aligned along and they're supposed to i don't know conduits for mystical energy or something a bit woo but you know he actually took some statistical methods and was trying to establish whether there was any evidence to support the fact that they might exist I oh wow and do, and, and, do, and do they <laughs> i i don't remember reading a conclusive decision on that but i don't i don't think so <laughs> So you mentioned that your previous, uh, uh, what, do, what do you guys call it here in the UK, course of study or, or, or degree, we just say degree. You mentioned yeah. that your previous degree was in, in, in uh, English literature. Have you thought <laughs> yes. about, so, you know, one of these things, when I, when I first got exposed to stats, things that uh, I heard people study was how many words, they, I don't know why someone would want to know this, but I guess it is kind of interesting. How many words does Shakespeare know? And then they went through his things. It's like, wow, you know, in this play, there's so many unique words. And well, then he this next. a lot of words. I think that's one of the things that people always say when, because I always get a bit kind of mm, Shakespeare. Mm. I mean, I, I like Shakespeare, like Shakespeare less than I did after I was forced to do a six hour exam on Shakespeare. <laughs> um, but I do, I kind of object to this dividing of literature into Shakespeare and everything else, I, which is kind of how it's taught or how it was taught when I was at school anyway but then one of the arguments against that is actually we have a lot of words that Shakespeare either invented or wrote down for the first time uh -huh. you can't say for sure that he invented them so that that is true yeah I remember spending a lot of time in the UCL library because I did my English degree at UCL they have these concordances which is just a book of all the words in Shakespeare <laughs> or like you can get concordances to a lot of things but it's basically a book of the words not necessarily in the right order, obviously. Yeah. So I guess they were trying to estimate this guy, how many unique words this guy knew. And you, yeah, you can, I, you can I, never I, really know. Yeah, I don't really know what you would do with a concordance. I just remember kind of stumbling across them and boggling slightly. So, so what's this thing? It's, it's a book of all the words that Shakespeare used. That's called the concordance. Yeah, but not necessarily of Shakespeare. You can get a concordance to the Bible. You can get a concordance. It's like the dictionary of a particular <gasps> body of work. And people compile this, like going to GitHub for the data of this stuff or something. Like I guess it's like, is it Google Trends? It's not quite Google Trends. You can search for how often a word is used on Google, I think. Oh, can you? Okay. I think so. Because you can always track, like, I think the big one that people have done recently is, is like searches for Brexit and things, but you can also check how many times words appear in books. So you can see the track the usage of oh. words over time. I wonder in the past that was someone's PhD thesis. Yeah, when basically. <laughs> Yeah. So is it back, back from the time when you would read statistics papers and they would thank the people at the computing lab for letting them use their computer and for letting them run 100 Monte Carlo simulations because <laughs> they could afford in the year that they had. It's, it's kind of 
parallel to that, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of funny, right? If you, if you ever think back to what we do now, right? I don't, when we look for a paper, so what, what? When you look for a paper, so you know, I gotta confess, I'm more of a maths guy, so I just go to Maths.net, and, and most of the math journals are indexed in Maths.net. And in the past, I guess these guys would have walked to the library and started browsing, or they would just ask. Hey, Professor Kendall, you know, do you know where this paper yeah. would be? And then, and then, you know, and, and then Wilford would probably turn around to his shelf and go, oh, I got this book here from, from my dad here. It's, it's in there probably. That's probably what he would do. He probably knows all yeah. the literature. So what, what, what do you do when you do research? What, where do you, what, what do you browse? Are most of the things indexed by MathSignet or, or how, how does it work instead? Um, I, I use Google Scholar. I don't tend to use MathSignet because I have that kind of uh, meteorology climate stats kind oh, of. Right. Uh-huh intersection to deal with i can't really just go to one place so i find that google scholar is it kind of just has everything so. yeah that's right oh i see because you have, you actually have to read science you have to actually read science journals possibly right yeah they're about the actual like the physics behind it and stuff yeah it, is that so. is that hard because i find it even hard to like if you told me to read like this different area of probability i find that even i don't even know i can't even read that you know? it's like probability is hard me read a probability paper i would just kind of back away slowly no i'm just, just gonna ask terry what it says <laughs> I, I probably but couldn't know yeah no but i i mean that's something that i'm doing quite a lot at the moment with the with this postdoc that i'm doing so we're looking at climate projections and we need to compute a load of indices of these climate projections so the first thing we needed to do is okay what are we gonna compute so we want indices of extreme weather you can't just say oh we're gonna compute compute maximum of this minimum of this you need some rationale for why that's a useful thing to compute. So I have spent weeks just trawling for papers going, right, drought indices. I need to learn drought indices now. Right, uh, what what can we do? What's likely to result in flooding? What's the kind of most useful metric that we can use to summarize the climate data? Uh, yes, I've had a big old crash course in <laughs> kind of weather indices and, and impact relevant metrics. It's been really interesting. Wow. I mean, that's why I like stats is because you get to nosy around in other people's research. <laughs> the good bits and be like i'm just going to read all the good papers you've written and then do some stats on it okay so when you do your stats on it do you do, do uh come up with a model or what, what's it sort of like in general um in what i'm doing at the moment it's very much a descriptive phase of the project so the project only started kind of in earnest at the beginning of this year and honestly it's taken me three months just to get the data to the right shape it's oh man climate data oh. Not, we're not discussing that. I'll just go <laughs> from that. <laughs> that will be it. Yeah, so the kind of first step is, because we, what we're actually doing is we're comparing um, an ensemble of projections that the Met Office have come up with, which uses one global climate model and one regional climate model to kind of predict the UK climate for the next 100 years. But they've kind of perturbed the physics, so they've got in different realisations of it, but it's all using one model, ultimately. Model. Uh -huh. And then there's this uh, Cordex ensemble, that has lots of different combinations of global climate model and regional climate model over the same area. So that gives you a lot more about the model uncertainty. So at the moment, what I'm doing is kind of comparing, here's what the UK ensemble says, and here's what this Cordex ensemble says. And that's kind of the first phase is just describing it and saying, okay, well, the Met Office ensemble explores the kind of warmer, drier end of the kind of what the projection, what all of these projections are saying. So if you kind of supplement that with the Cordex ensemble, you get a, a wider spread of, you, you can't really treat it as a probability distribution on this because it's not calibrated on, on whatever quantity you're looking at. It's not a distribution, but you get 
you get different scenarios basically so the met office ensemble is kind of showing warm dry scenarios and and the euro cordex ensemble we think is going to be kind of cooler wetter ensemble, uh, scenarios because that obviously has a big difference on like what your global mean temperature is going to do and what your changing risks are Make, are you doing a critique of these models or are you combining the models critique makes it sound like it's of the models themselves it's it's going to be reporting on the kind of differences in the models where they complement each other so if you're a researcher that is interested in looking at drought and you want to know what's going to happen if you want to know what's kind of the the least severe drought you don't want to be looking at the met office this is massively oversimplified by the way <laughs> <laughs> that's what you need to do for Parvolus, right? This, 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 this is this is what you, this, this is what you need to do for Parvolus. That's good. I can I can do massively oversimplified. So yeah, if you were if you wanted to look at drought indices, so if you only look at the Met Office, which is known to have this warm dry bias, then you're only going to get the kind of more severe end of what's projected. Uh -huh. So you really need to know kind of what your spread is within each of these indices within each of these ensembles, so that you know which one to pick for what you want to consider. Kind of what you want to evaluate. So I guess like correcting the bias of these things is going to be harder than dividing by one over n minus one instead of one over n. Then I guess right. Yeah, we're, we're not getting <laughs> bias correction yet. So this is the first stage. This is the kind of descriptive stage. Is literally just going to be making a load of pretty plots and going, oh look, this one's wet, this one's dry, this ensemble shows this, this ensemble shows this, and it's it's going to be that kind of descriptive analysis. One of the things we're going to look at which is introducing this framework of Richards that I was talking about with the the kind of uncertainty quantification and the combining uh, models and trying to do some bias correction is we want to look at the uncertainty sources of uncertainty so how much of your model uncertainty comes from your choice of global climate model how much from your regional climate model can you split out in a meaningful way these sources of uncertainty and can you use that to design future experiments in a more efficient way can you do anything about it? Can you can you bias correct? Can you bias correct for twenty different variables simultaneously I, over the whole globe? But I guess just from you know, some naive standpoint, if you know there's a bias, surely you should be able to correct for it, right? <laughs> yeah, that is the naive way of doing it. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, I could, I wish that was the case. I really wish. That I was guess the case. it's not that so, simple, right? This. If you correct your temperature, if you change your temperature by two degrees because your model is two degrees too cold so you, yeah. you up your temperature by two degrees what's that going to do to your snowfall what's that going to do to your precipitation oh, I see. it changes time. whether it rains and it changes it, so oh. all of these physical dependencies so you have to be really careful with statistical bias correction uh -huh. because you you just break the physics basically you can you can make weather that couldn't happen <laughs> ah it's, it's like when i played with um my brother took a music course he came home with this program called finale and then I loaded it on my computer and I said, oh, I can write music. I just got to put these, you know, in, in Chinese, we call them black beans. I think maybe it's only Cantonese people to call them these black bean sauce. I'm going to put the black beans in. And then I started playing this piece. And then he, he wrote some pieces for his class. And then the professor, most people in the class had were, were classically trained. We didn't grow up playing anything. And the professor was like, yeah, you know, this is, this is fine. But, you know, this is not humanly playable. <laughs> <laughs> I think going to do this. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> But uh, Richard, the other day, mentioned that, oh, you're joining us on the call. And I was, I was like, oh, so Claire, you're, you're a postdoc right now. Yes, even though I haven't quite submitted my PhD yet. <laughs> how, does it, how does it feel to have moved on to the next level? I don't really feel like I have yet. I don't think I can claim that I've moved on until I've submitted my thesis. 
which I really need to crack on and do. Oh, but that but that's already all done, I guess, right? Because you're working on this new stuff already. It's, well, that's the problem. It's not quite finished writing up yet. And now finding the time to finish writing it up is, is <laughs> not easy. <laughs> but yeah, it's getting there. It's getting there. We're not, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> it's the breach of my watches. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's nice. It's kind of odd not being able to go into the department. Actually, I think it was a bigger change just when everyone went into lockdown and everything went online. And uh-huh. suddenly things that I would have had to go into the department for, like the department seminars and, and all this kind of thing, suddenly it was all online. I was like, oh, I can actually join this without having to commute. <laughs> Which when I don't have an office is not super motivating to, you know, I go once a week to go and have my supervisions and I try and coincide that with the department seminar. But now uh-huh. there are kind of reading groups and there's the randomised coffee trial, which is just genius. Um, so I actually got, I probably got to meet more people after lockdown started, not because of ju- starting the postdoc. That's not really where the change happened, but just when everything went online. It's like, oh. Oh, so what do you plan to do? This postdoc goes on for... It's another year and a half. So it'll be finished September. I'm not sure which end of September. September 2022. Are you already planning for jobs then? If it's over in September, is it... <laughs> Thesis first, then apply. Oh, that's you still got you still got to have the thesis. Priorities, priorities. That's done. Um, that's done. Whatever. Yeah. No, I'm gonna have a couple of months of not having to worry about a job. But yeah, I suspect I have to start applying for my next position alarmingly early, don't I? I'm I'm kind of keeping an eye on job offers that kind of come through, just getting an idea of what I might like to do. But I'm not really thinking about it actively. Have, have you gone to the interviews that we had here? Did you go to my interview? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I'm sure I would remember if I'd been in your interview. You could have. You could have tagged me. You could have went to Richard's. Like this guy, this guy's complete garbage. Don't hire this guy. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm sure I would remember. I think because that was all happening when it was still in the department. Yeah, yeah, it was June, yeah. June 2000, like oh, 19 or something like that. Yeah, it was just before you started, like the September before we all. I started out. January. I started January. Oh, January. That was it. It was. It was odd timing. I think. Yeah, so because it was all happening in the department and I wasn't going into the department very much, unless it happened to be on a day when I was going in because I had to do something else. Uh, I, I, I think I've sat in on like two days of the interview presentations. Uh, They're always quite fun. Yeah, because you, this is what you, you, in some sense, it's good experience to go to the interviews. You, you yeah, see yeah. what to expect, right? So people usually usually put on their A-game when they go to their interviews, right? Otherwise, if, if it's just some regular talk, you, you don't you don't bother dressing up in the suit, right? You, you bring your... <laughs> You bring your best suit to, to, to the <laughs> you bring your best suit to the interview usually, right? Or you, you, what what do you guys call it here? I was interviewing somewhere and they said they said da 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 da. There's gonna be a dinner. Da, 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 da. Okay, uh, smart dress something. Some smart dress not required for the dinner or something like this because the dinner was casual or something like this. But they used the word uh, smart dress. Just wear your fanciest garment. Did you have a good time doing a PhD here? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I stuck around for a postdoc. That kind of thing. <laughs> Can't been that bad. Yeah, no, I think it was, I, I did it in a slightly unusual way in that I was working from home the whole time. So I haven't been as involved in the department as probably a lot of people would be. But actually, there was still quite a lot of opportunities to kind of meet people. I wouldn't say I felt super isolated, even only coming in kind of once a day, because we would always have the, you'd have the department seminar. As I said, I'd try and arrange my supervisions to kind of coincide with that so that I could talk to other people just once, once in a week. And then you'd always have the department tea. So I got to know quite a few people in the department doing that, but just more staff than students, I think. I didn't get to meet many of the PhD students that Uh way. So yeah, I suspect if you actually came and and 
worked in the PhD room, which was something I didn't do, then uh, then you'd have a, a lot more <laughs> a lot more social interactions with with other people. Do you have any advice for for future PhD students or or just future statisticians in, in general? Uh, th- I, my big one at the moment is finish your thesis before you start your postdoc. <laughs> That's like my golden rule. The goal is always just to get the next job. It doesn't matter. Once the next, that, 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 that I think doesn't even matter as far as I'm concerned. You get the next job. That, that's all that matters is the permanent position, right? That, that, that's all that matters. But. Permanent position would be different. <laughs> yeah, what else? I don't know. Just um, find a supervisor that you actually get on with, I guess. Mm-hmm. I get the impression a lot of students just find a project and kind of go, oh, that'll do. I'll just apply for that. Whereas I, because I kind of did it in this slightly weirdly timed weird route by actually just getting in touch with Richard I kind of knew after I chatted to him that we had a similar sort of approach and similar sort of sense of humor and and we just kind of got on when I spoke to him and I thought yeah I could probably deal with spending a few years working for you it's only three years right or something like that right but but, you know you you really want it to be someone that you do actually get on with so I I would that would be my my advice what about uh, other other young young statisticians in general? Do you have any sort of advice or any 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 outlook words of wisdom from because no. your person has acquired the next job already, right? So this this uh, yeah, don't annoy your supervisor and maybe they when they see a postdoc opportunity they will recommend. You. <laughs> Try not to avoid annoy your supervisor. That's probably the big one. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Claire, for speaking to us tonight. And, and next time we speak, hopefully it'll be Dr. Barnes. And then soon enough after that, you know, in, in the UK, it's a big deal here, right? You guys have like this distinction, this doctor-professor distinction, right? Whereas every everyone in, in North America is a professor, right? And hopefully in a few years after that, it'd be, it'd be uh, Professor Barnes. <laughs> that or Dame. <laughs> or Dame Lord or whatever. They have this like Dame Professor. I don't know. What, what order does it go? Does it go Professor Dame or Dame Professor? Oh, I don't know. I've we can look this up. Years to ponder that one, though, before it becomes an issue. So I, I think we're good on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much and uh, uh, good night. And we'll speak to you again soon. Yes. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.